CRM has been proven to limit sales reps' responsiveness, persistency, and cadence. It's a design flaw, and it's losing you deals. That is why today's sales leaders use sales engagement platforms like VanillaSoft. Check it out. Go to VanillaSoft.com and start your free trial. August 23rd, 2019, San Francisco. The Sales Development Conference. The third annual conference focused and dedicated 100% to sales development. Join over 500 of the most influential sales development leaders in our industry for a full day of learning, networking, and growing your skills. This year, we're offering three learning tracks focused on sales development leadership, rep training, and our newest track dedicated to sales and marketing operations. Grab your tickets today before it sells out over at tenbound.com conference. That's tenbound.com conference. See you August 23rd. Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Sales Development Podcast. This is a big one, folks. This is this is like three years in the making. I don't know how, <laughs> however long I've been doing this podcast. This is a rock star in the sales development community. If you've ever been to Rainmaker, if you've ever been to Unleash, you know this guy, Mr. Stephen Brody, VP and head of sales at Bevy Labs. How are you doing today, sir? Great, great. Really excited to finally be here. And I, I <laughs> deeply apologize for kicking and dragging my feet, but I'm absolutely amped and hopefully this will be valuable for your audience today. Oh, I, I know it will, man. I mean, and not to set expectations too high, but when I started this, I had like a short list of like three or four people that I had to get on. I had to get on Matt Admonson. I had to get on Ralph Farsi and I had to get on Stephen Brody. Like <laughs> That was my initial thing. And I, I remember talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm just laughing because that's two superstars and one dud. So yeah. I think I, I get it. You got to have a, a nice basis of comparison. But yeah, yeah. no, I, I, I that, that's great company to ever be, you know, sharing. So I appreciate it. And I'm excited to dig in. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is, this is coming from just knowing you, you're a really great guy. And, and if you guys don't know Steven, you got to meet him at the next meetup or conference, but also you've done some presentations really unpacking, you know, how you ran things in your sales development organization that were just, you know, super, you know, detailed and data focused and, and really like up level the game of sales development, which is what we're exactly trying to do on the podcast. Mm-hmm. So, you know, okay, so for the five people in our community who have never heard of you, <laughs> could you give us a little download on your background and how you got into sales and sales development? Sure, sure. So I'll start with how I got into sales, which was totally by accident. You know, I think I did what a lot of people who end up in sales did in college, where I did the whole like alumni dialing for dollars thing. And I actually realized I really liked it, mostly because at the time I was really bad at talking to women. And I realized that if I only dialed the female alumni at UC Santa Barbara, I could at least practice trying to talk to them. So that was my first foray into sales. Prior to that, I had, I had actually worked it in and out. I was a level four fry technician, but I quit wow. the day. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I loved that job. The thing I'll say about in and out is they're the kind of company that will hire someone because of their smile or so they say, I think they, they hired me because I was willing to take the role, but you know, they're such a customer centric company. Sometimes you don't even notice because the food is so damn good that that really, I look at that as like my first foray into, into having a customer facing role. When I was in college, I took a sort of different path. I, I got really into working out. I had been like a five foot seven, 
155 pound high schooler. And suddenly I grew and I didn't really fill out. So I started going to the gym for the first time and I got super into physical fitness and how great it made me feel. And I thought I was taking like a 5am workout class at UC Santa Barbara. And it turns out it was actually an army ROTC class. <laughs> really? in, in retro- yeah. Huh. Yeah. In, in retrospect, I probably should have known there's no 5am workout classes at UC Santa Barbara, but what ended up happening was I figured out that, that there was a sort of small cohort of people in that program who were super motivated, focused, and driven, and and really had chosen to graduate from college, commission as an officer, and do what they understood to be the most difficult job possible. And this was in the midst of, you know, two wars, which I sort of full-heartedly thought would be over if I didn't make that leap soon enough. And I was just kind of curious. Like, I felt like this is the hardest thing I could ever do. And ultimately, I actually ended up declining my commission as an officer my senior year, which does not go over well when you've been, you know, you've had your college covered and they've been paying you a stipend. And and basically I declined it because I found out that if you are an officer, you have to wait four years to try out for army special operations. And if you're an enlisted guy, you can actually go right in with a contract that gives you the opportunity to do that. So I ended up Declining my commission, I basically got a letter that said, hey, pay back the $21,000 we gave you for college and and go join the army. And I ended up making it through the selection process and ended up in Army Special Operations with 2nd Ranger Battalion, where I went to Iraq twice and Afghanistan three times. And it was honestly like the best experience of my life. Like I loved it, but I didn't like being poor. You know, like I I feel like a defining (laughs) moment for me. You know, I was a product of like a single mom with two siblings, one of whom had Down syndrome. She was constantly working. I sort of raised myself in a lot of ways. Or actually, my sister raised me to her credit. And, you know, like I, I ended up going to this really good school in San Francisco as like the, the poor kid on a full scholarship, like the charity case sort of thing. And I was going to school with like the upper crust of the city. Like my best friend, his family had their name on a lecture hall at Cal, put it that way. And I remember one time, yeah, I think it was like seventh grade or sixth grade. I was at his house and it was like 8 PM and it was time to go home. And he was literally like, I I shouldn't say I was at his house. I was like at his mansion in Seacliff and his maid was going to give me a ride to the bus stop so I can get on Muni and take two buses home. And I remember just like getting in the car and looking at his house and saying, you know, pardon my French, but like, screw this. I don't want to die poor. And I think had I never decided that I probably would have never found my way back into sales. And as much as I loved what I was doing in Ranger Battalion, I was literally living paycheck to paycheck and and scrapping along. And again, I, I grew up in San Francisco. So when I came back, naturally it was just sort of something I fell into. The the irony of all this is if you look at my professional journey from that point on, the first role I applied to as a referral even was to be an SDR at Salesforce. And they told me that I was underqualified. Oh my God. Which, which, yeah. 
So, I mean, I'm grateful that they told me that because what I ended up finding was a different company, Evolve, which was basically willing to bring me on. And I think they had basically like hired and fired their inside org like two times over. And they basically said like, look, you can come on board. And if you can prove this thing can work, you can like grow and scale the team. And so I started doing that and we had some success. And then we got acquired by Cornerstone On Demand. And I had the opportunity to like go and take sort of a promotion and run a bigger team on in Santa Monica, figure out what I wanted to do and stay in the city. And I actually had had this roommate in college who happened to be CEO. I think we're hiring for like the same role you should. And I came into no idea what MuleSoft did. I didn't, I, I mean, I, I know that it's impactful and it's an incredible team, but what was really apparent in the interview process was that the, the density of talent was just so unbelievably high. And the caliber of individual that I met at every stage along the way was just so impressive. And, you know, I wrote a, a blog piece on this recently when I finally left MuleSoft, but MuleSoft really put to bed my biggest fear getting out of Army Special Operations, which was that I would never work with that sort of density of talent ever again. And, and you know, it's really to the credit of the team that that I had a lot of success there where we took a team, and I say I, I, I really mean we, we took a team from seven people in one office in San Francisco to like 67 people across five offices with like, you know, eight leaders underneath us that really were driving like true tangible impact for the company, you know, like in excess of 50, 60% of pipeline. And on top of that, over the course of three years, we really like gained a sort of position of respect and, and really were trusted in a way that those members of that org were working 40% of the way into the sales cycle quite often. Now, part of that is that being in a highly complex, highly technical enterprise sale where you you know you could have a four month sales cycle or you could have a nine month sales cycle. There's so many different touch points that just having an awkward handoff is really not like a buyer centric experience. And we were all about sort of exceeding customer expectations in every interaction. And part of that also was a function of we had such incredible talent where you know we were hiring like less than one percent of the people who applied for the role. And the bar was so high that we figured, look, if we're going to make such a massive investment in bringing the best people on board, we need to make a massive investment in giving them opportunities to continue to learn and grow and really realize like a level of mastery in sales. And because of that, like a lot of them ultimately went on to sort of go full cycle while they were still a part of our org and then ultimately move into the rest of the ranks in MuleSoft. And, you know, they went into every org you can possibly think of from sales to customer success to leadership to operations to, you know, even talent. But, you know, to speak to the the ones who went to sales in particular, like I look at someone who moved into the commercial sales role, Zach, last year, and, you know, he didn't even have a full year in role and just crushed it in the commercial space and drove like one of the biggest commercial deals we've ever had. And I feel like that's a function of him having grown up 
well, one, it's a function of the fact that like he's an incredibly capable growth oriented individual. But on the other hand, it's a function of him having grown up in an org that really set the expectation that like, you're not a meeting booker, you are a salesperson. And our commitment to you is to really enable you to be the best salesperson possible and to really drive like a consistent rigor around deliberate practice and ensuring that you're constantly growing and learning. And and in return, like this is going to be career defining for you. And this is such a highly technical, complex sale that even going 40% of the way through the sales cycle, you're learning on hard mode. And it really makes any transition into any other sales role much easier than, than I think even a lot of people at MuleSoft on that team recognize. And I, I only sort of recognize it in hindsight because I, while we sort of always harped on the fact that like core fundamental sales skills are what make all the difference in sales, if you think about the fact that MuleSoft's probably in the upper 1% for the level of complexity and how technical the sales process is and you know the sort of level at which you're ultimately going to be engaging in the executive suite like most other sales processes or plays that other companies are running are not nearly as complex and they don't have a product that's that sort of technically oriented so if you extract out just the focus on fundamentals i feel like what's pretty amazing is is just how easily someone from that org can transition into a different sales org or even within MuleSoft and find a high degree of success. I have so I have so many questions for you, but keep going. I, I this, is, <laughs> this is yeah. I'll, I'll give the last sort of thirty seconds of of my professional resume. So I was tapped by the president of the company to actually work with the head of talent to start the global biz ops function, and my sort of first project was working with that head of talent, Leslie, who was phenomenal to really apply a sales methodology to how talent was run. Because if you look at like in most organizations, talent is fundamentally like one of the most mismanaged orgs because at at the root of it, like they're a sales team, but also at the root of how most talent teams operate or the reasons people go into talent is they don't want to be in sales. And therefore they, they don't, orchestrate their processes and operationalize them in a way where they can run like an inside sales org. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And that was an amazing experience because it really opened up my eyes to just how applicable sort of applying a sales methodology is to any org. But once we learned we were getting acquired by Salesforce, I actually sort of deviated from the role. And I I stayed on board for the next year, but through the course of being at MuleSoft, I found out that we had this platform that we were using to build our, our in-person community on top of, and concurrently, actually, I probably shouldn't share this piece. So I'm just going to move on, but someone else was using them that I became intimately familiar with. And I was introduced to the CEO and started advising them. And that was Bevy. And what I realized was Bevy was on the brink of doing for community leaders what Gainsight had done for customer success. And by that, I mean, you think about customer success as a role, as a function within an organization. You know, I think prior to Gainsight really equipping people with 
the data to quantify the impact that customer success was having, net retention rates and renewals. Like the, I imagine, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily around this long. So this is my sort of speculation, but I imagine that the customer success leaders within a lot of orgs were sort of relegated to the corner of the boardroom. And, and, you know, now you think like net retention is the metric in SaaS that tends to carry like an, un, you know, the most weight or certainly a lot. And if you look at what Bevy's doing, which is really empowering community leaders to scale community and really sort of activate the members of their community that are excited about their product and, and frankly, like go and sort of market to other prospects. Like I think because we're able to align data around what normally used to be a black hole, which is like what's happening in person, you're actually able to sort of understand what's happening in this channel that was fundamentally just a sort of throw darts into the dark sort of org. And, and when that happens, I think people are going to understand like on a dollar for dollar basis, this is like the like best return on investment we can make. And on top of that, like community becomes a defensible asset the same way, like driving a high net retention rate is for a company. So I'm, I'm super stoked to be there. And, and that's where I'm at now. I can tell. I, I want to dig into that. That sounds really, really interesting. But there's a, a few things that you highlighted that I have here. When you came into MuleSoft, there was that density of talent. You used that a couple of times. You had a density of talent in, in the Army Special Ops. You had a density of talent at MuleSoft. And, and so I just want to dig in on that a little bit. Like, how do you define that when you came in? And then how did you keep that going? You said that you, you only allowed in 1% of the people that were interested in, in coming on board with you. So you must have had that, continued that. So how do you define that? And then how did you keep it going there? Yeah, yeah. So le- less than 1%. So I think the first piece is like, how do you define the type of people you want to bring on board? And I think, first of all, you need to sort of start with, doing a sort of recursive analysis and saying, hey, look, if I'm to take a look at like who our top performers actually are, what are the core traits and characteristics that tend to predict what makes one successful within this org? And what's interesting is they often are not what you expected. Like we used to be a lot more picky about bringing on board people from tier one colleges, like top 20. And we actually found that if you created sort of cohorts across the big data set we had because the team got really big and you sort of bucketed people into like, you know, top 20 schools, next 20, and then everything else in terms of performance and role, the sort of next 20, like tier, tier two type schools actually did the best tier three did the second best. And then the tier one schools did the worst. Now the caveat on that is many of our overall top performers still were people who came from tier one schools. So, you know, like you need to first like test your hypothesis for what good actually looks like in role and what the traits and values those individuals embody are. Second, you need to codify that as the set of core values that your organization has now are, right? Like for us, like grittiness, growth mindset, passion for sales, those became core to our values as a team because they were most predictive of success. And then the third piece is 
when you interview, you need to make sure you're structuring questions that suss out whether or not someone embodies those traits. Like a good example is coachability was highly predictive of success and it became a core value of ours. And we would do realistic job profiles where you would do like a cold call test. Now, I think a lot of people do cold call tests, but what they're often testing for is how good did someone do? Now, if you're an early career salesperson, you just might not be good at cold calling. And we're going to make an investment in getting you great. But what I actually want to test for is how well you take coaching and feedback. So what we would do is we have a sort of script we'd always follow and, and you know, a candidate would go through the process and we stop them. And no matter how well they had done in the exercise, we'd say, look, here's my feedback. I'm going to hang up, call me back in five minutes and let's do it again. And what we were actually assessing for is, did you actually internalize and execute on the coaching and feedback we gave you? Oh my God, dude, that's huge. There's nothing worse than having an SDR who's just like, oh yeah, I know that already. Like, I know exactly. That. Like, I, I already tried that. I tried that. Doesn't work. Which is a fixed mindset. Right, right. Tell me about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like growth mindset, you know, I, I think like mindset's a great book and everyone should read it. And frankly, I think in everyone's lives, they tend to be more growth oriented in some sort of domains of their life than others. But at least for us, what we really needed was someone who embodied a growth mindset. And the reason being that, again, we, we determined that it was predictive of success. I think, you know, like minds, like a growth mindset is in a fixed mindset, you, you really view failure as like failure versus you view, view it as an opportunity to get better. You like externalize blame when you have a fixed mindset versus internalize responsibility and think about how you can actually get better. So you can assess for that. And like, you know, one of the best questions is, you know, tell me about a time you were set up for failure. And I love that question because when someone's really growth oriented, they tend to answer to the effect of like, well, I can't really think of a time I was set up for failure. One time I failed was X, Y, and Z. And what I learned was A, B, and C versus well, one time my boss totally set me up for failure and left me out to dry. And, you know, I still crushed it, but I was pretty pissed or something. To <laughs> Are you in sales, but you're not using a sales engagement tool? Then you're probably losing out on revenue because you are not engaging with prospects at the right time, with the right cadence, and with enough persistency. You need VanillaSoft. Start your free trial today. Go to VanillaSoft.com. That's, that's interesting because I was watching a, like a TED talk of the lady who wrote that book on mindset. I can't remember her name right now, but it was interesting because she, she brought up a, a thing that she's been seeing out there where people think that they have a growth mindset, but they really have a fixed mindset. And it made me kind yeah. of think like, what if my, what are my reactions? Like I, I'm, I'm sitting there going, Hey, I got a growth mindset. I'm all about growth, you know, and all that stuff. But then you look at some of your reactions. And what you're saying is in the interview process, you look at some of their reactions and you're like, this person actually has a fixed mindset, even though they think mm -hmm. maybe they have a growth mindset. That's interesting. Yeah. Dweck nailed it. Like, yes. I think it's a must read. And I think again, like Carol Dweck, it, we were looking for this in your professional life. I think if, you know, if you had asked my girlfriend 10 years ago, if I had a fixed mindset, she probably would have said yes. Like, again, everyone's sort of 
skirts growth and fixed mindset in certain domains of their life. But professionally, if you do it, it's a, it's a total killer. Okay. These are some great attributes. I bet there's a bunch of them. But what I want to ask you also is, you know, there's a scarce number of recruits out there. Like it's hard to mm-hmm. find good SDR recruits. Like the economy has been really good for a long time and people have gotten used to this. And, and so, but you're only allowing 1% in. So how did you balance like your boss coming to you and saying, Hey, Steven, like we need some more SDRs. And you're saying, I'm, you know, only going to let in 1%. Yeah. I am absolutely unwavering and unwilling to compromise on any hire. Like there is never a good time to just have a butt in seat. And on top of that, if you think about the long-term value that a great hire drives over a crappy hire or even a neutral hire, like the outside performance is just so great that it's like even the time it takes to fill that slot ultimately ends up being worth it. I, I mean, like, I've, I've worked with people in the past who were really good at hiring to their headcount and they hit their goals because of it. But ultimately, like they had a lot of cultural bugs. And if you think about it, like no one is net has a net neutral impact on culture. And the second you hire a B player, you're setting the, the floor for what you're willing to bring on board. And if you only hire the best people possible, it's going to attract the best people possible. You know, I I always say it like eagles want to soar with eagles. They don't want to fly with pigeons. Like the reason I was willing to endure eight weeks in, you know, ranger selection to just of getting totally decimated physically and just being emotionally like I don't want to say abused. I think it was emotionally taxed was because I wanted to work with the best people possible. And because of that only the best people possible made it through that selection process. And similarly, like if you just narrow the funnel and only bring aboard a players, like you're going to bring aboard people who aren't just inspired to win. They're going to inspire those around them to win. And, and I'm bringing that same sort of mindset to building a team at Bevy, like, because it's, it's really sort of a nascent sales org. We're really approaching how we go to market as like, how do we go from being focused on growth at all costs to being like incredibly efficient and effective at the rep level? And that's really amazing because what it allows us to do is devote more time and resources to great people and sort of build like a special operations sales org where it's smaller, but on the whole, like far more effective. If you look at like the army special operations community, like Ranger Battalion is three battalions. And that probably doesn't mean much to most people. Technically, it's four count headquarters. But what that, you know, if you take a look at like the 82nd Airborne, like it's a great unit, but that's like 25,000 some odd people. And Ranger Regiment was going out every single night in the middle of the night, basically for 10, 12, 15 years and doing direct action raids. And that's with a really small unit, but because they had set the bar so high, they were entrusted with like such a critical mission. Similarly, if you approach sales hiring in the same way, you don't want to like fall prey to the temptation to just find product market fit and blow the thing up like Zenefits, right? You've seen, you've seen the way that can go. Wow. There's an opposite model for you. (laughs) Totally. But let me ask totally. you this. Let me ask you this. So say somebody's out there, they're listening to this podcast, they're struggling. They're they're running, they're 
maybe a first time manager or they're a director and they're just like, ah, you know, nothing's going right here. We're, we're losing respect, you know, from the sales team. Yeah. My, my VP is all over me. Like, what am I going to do? I mean, you know, they have the team that's in place, right? I mean, maybe mm-hmm. they didn't follow this path. Like, are there two or three things that you could give them to say, okay, here's here's how you can start to turn things around, like over the next couple months? Yeah, I mean, because I came from the sort of background that I came from, I think people assume that I'm just, just like this cold-hearted, ruthless person, which isn't true, right? <laughs> like, I, but I mean, let's. I'll, I'll be completely honest. If I was to inherit an organization that had a lot of B players, I think the first thing I would do is take on a stock of the team I have in place and figure out whether or not they're raising the collective water level for everyone. Now, again, like I think there's orgs where you probably could have a bunch of B players because it's just highly transactional. You're not selling value. It's just sort of order taking or whatever, you know, and, and for that, like, okay, you know, if you're running a contact center or something, got it. But yeah, I think the first thing I'd say is be unafraid to to make bold moves and take on a stock of who you have and get rid of the people who aren't true A players. And by the way, like think about all of the opportunities and leads and contacts and deals that those people are burning. And when you hand them over to your now smaller team of A players, like they're going to maximize the value of them. Now, it doesn't mean that some people are going to be a little overstuffed or, or that you're going to have to spend most of your day hiring, probably, but you probably should be spending most of your day hiring anyhow. So I think the reality is people talk about building teams of A players, but most people can point out their B players. And if you can point out a B player and they're still sticking around, that's an issue. Okay. So it's it's almost like you got to kind of put your consulting consulting hat on and like come into your organization tomorrow from a completely different angle and then start. And I love this. I mean, you're, you, you got to look at your team through that eye of, do I have a team of A players? I mean, is there anything outside of that, that, that should be addressed that, that we could be losing opportunities? I love it. And then, yeah. and then, you know, achieving, you said another thing, achieving respect from the sales org mm-hmm. and the executives and the marketing team. I, I I see that as such a hard thing within a lot of the companies out there because the sales development program is kind of in the middle of all these different, you know, silos and they're trying to make all these connections, but a lot of times they lost respect. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think first of all, you pointed out both the challenge and the opportunity, which is that sales development uniquely sits between marketing and sales in most organizations. Now, what's really like the biggest risk of that is that you sort of are on the one hand beholden to making sure you're maximizing the value that the marketing org is driving. And on the other hand, making sure that sales reps are successful. And so if you sour the taste of either of those orgs, like it's, it's sort of a hard campaign to wage. That said, like it's, it, it's also the opportunity. Like I think the thing that we did different was by recognizing that we were uniquely positioned between sales and marketing. We, we decided like we are going to be the sort of translators that transcribe everything that marketing is putting out into language that not only we can use, but that the sales org as a whole can take to go to market. And 
because of that, we became like a trusted advisor to the sales org and frankly to the marketing org because they turned to us to say, hey, is this even an asset that you would use or how could we improve this or how do we distill it down into a format that's actually actionable when you're on the phone or if you're doing discovery with a prospect. And that like really meaningfully moved the needle within the org. I think the thing to recognize is like, that is a campaign you need to wage. It is not a battle you need to fight once. Mm. Okay. And it takes time to build that trust and it takes way less time to erode it. And I think the easiest way to erode it to our point earlier is to hire the wrong people because you start getting a headcount demand to put butts in seats. It's so interesting because I, I think that, you know, some of the best marketers out there have been salespeople in the past and sometimes SDR. So they actually know, you know, what it's like on the ground. It, you get sort of an ivory tower effect in marketing yeah. where you look at the stuff that they're producing through the eye of actually, I like how you put translating that to a message that resonates with people, actual people. Exactly. You know? and, and so that is a great tip for, you know, building that respect, really communicating with marketing, acting as a translator. And then again, it looks like we come back to, you know, if you're putting the wrong people in place, you're going to erode that trust. Look at it as a long-term campaign. I, I love that. And, and I also wanted to ask you about the, the way that, messaging has to change now in 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 this new era of the buyer journey i think mm -hmm. we're still we're still using antiquated messaging structures of like mm -hmm. you know 10 years ago and people were not getting the same returns on there right so how have you mm -hmm. seen that buyer journey change and how are you reacting to that you know currently yeah i think the sort of data that most or sort of best characterizes the evolving B2B buying environment is data that Gartner put out on how buyers actually spend their time in a B2B buying process. So if you can imagine like a pie chart, people spend about 27% of their time researching online. Now that's, that's actually where they spend the most time, but if you think about it, it's also one of the most inundated channels. The, the way you could be better at doing that as an organization is uh, truthfully ungate all your content so they could actually complete their buying jobs and don't make it hard for them to buy. If they've got a buying job to complete, ungate that, make it easy for them to buy. The second place where they spend a lot of time is like meeting with their buying group. So they spend like 22% of their time there. You need to equip them to be able to go back to that constituency or that constituent group and say, hey, look, here's the collateral that sort of validates that I've done my job as a buyer and that I've assessed, you know, the best path forward and I've evaluated all the vendors and this is the best one. But if you think about where they spend their time where you have some control, they spend 17% of their time meeting with your sales team and they spend 18% of their time actually meeting with people in real life and talking about you kind of behind your back actually. Now, that totally makes sense to you or I if you think about like how we buy. And I'm not sure if you're like me, but like I don't have a lot of time in my day. So I love being able to go on Amazon, do a little bit of research, see what has five stars and just buying something if I know that I want to buy it. Right. So that sort of plays into that 27% of your time is spent doing online research. You've got like G2 Crowd to do that. 
it's, you know, there's a, there's a shift towards making that easier. The second piece though, is, you know, if I don't know what I want to buy, I ask my friends. And if I see something that they have, I ask them what it is. And that's that offline component. The fact that people actually spend less time with sales reps and more time offline meeting with people in real life means two things. Like one, your sales reps need to be masterful. So you need to have an organization that's committed to deliberate practice, focused on coaching, and is delivering in excess customer expectations at every step in the process. And that means doing personalization at scale. And I could like spend all day talking about that, but it's been beaten to death. You do need to do it. There's tooling to enablement or to enable it, and you need to make that investment. The second piece, though, is an interesting one, which is like, we all sort of intuitively get this, like at MuleSoft or Salesforce, like in-person events are the biggest lead source by revenue. But if you think about something like Dreamforce or the MuleSoft Connect and Summits, like those are great, but they're really expensive. And they're very like heavy-handed, very involved sort of productions. And if you think about how people really buy, like they ask the people within their own sort of community. So the best orgs like MuleSoft, like Salesforce, like Slack and Atlassian or Asana have really activated their community and created opportunities with like user groups or doing community in-person events for those people to get in front of their customers and advocate on your behalf without you having to prompt them. And in a way that feels very organic because people trust people who bought your product, but they don't trust your salespeople. So on the one hand, you got to win back that trust, but like, like that's really hard and it takes a lot of commitment and you should do it. But what I would say is like, how do you better equip your sales team to drive people to these offline events so that, customers can market to your prospects or customers can market to other customers. And when you do that and you understand the impact that it's having, cause you're attributing it back into your sort of systems of record, what you begin to understand is like your net retention rate goes up, your ability to acquire new customers goes up. You can actually increase your overall net promoter score. And you're doing it in a way where it's like, it's very cost efficient because your community is sort of scaling on your behalf. So, okay. So say you're, you're an SDR, you know, listening right now and you're looking, you're selling some kind of software service, for example, and there, there is a community, you know, that's built up that they could potentially enter. How, Mm -hmm. how do you, how do you go into that community as like a value creator, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and enter that community in a way that's not too pushy or too salesy? where you could potentially even get kicked out, you know, for being too Mm -hmm. salesy about it. Yeah. That's a great question. Alice Hyman actually just sort of stood up a company that helps people be better at trade shows. And she and I were just talking about this topic, but I think the, the thing that's really interesting to me is in my experience, when I go to these kinds of community events, like modern sales pros, great example, like it's a community I I really value. People spend so much time talking about vendors that if you never spoke up about what you did, you'd probably be sitting at a table where someone would bring up 
your org and they could, and like, frankly, like they're going to ask you almost out of a sense of obligation if you're there. But like, what I would say is, you know, you need to be genuinely curious. I think the thing that a lot of like sales development reps in particular, because they're early in their career tend to fall victim to like happy years. And one way to mitigate having happy years is be genuinely curious about whether or not someone even is a good fit. And especially for people who are working in a startup, you could go and grow your customer base as much as you could possibly do, but can you effectively service them and make them wildly successful? I'd argue probably not. So you need to be really picky about who you bring on board. So you're almost doing a disservice sometimes in acquiring the wrong customers. So if you're at one of these events, like just bear in mind that just because someone could be a good fit until you're even like aware of the fact that that really truly is the case and you've authentically sort of come to understand their problems and their challenges, like it's not your place to pitch. And again, like people have this weird, I mean, if you read the book, Give and Take, you know, there's people who give first and don't really ask for anything in return. There's people who sort of take first and take a lot and never really give in return. And then most people actually fall into like the category of matching which means like they match when you give them something. If you just give people so much value without talking about yourself, like they're almost going to feel beholden to want to reciprocate and return the favor. If you can actually genuinely help them navigate their problems, they might say like, by the way, like what do you guys actually do? I'd love to explore that. But I do think you bring up a good point, which is you can't be pushy. Like community, community is contingent on being authentic and you erode that trust and to the point I made earlier, people already don't trust salespeople. When you come in and you pitch, like this is not Wolf of Wall Street. You're not trying to sell penny stocks. Like you're trying to help people improve their lives and you're trying to alleviate their pain. So be genuinely empathetic and actually curious and, and really listen. I love that. And and I mean, I think, you know, we we do a training program for SDRs and we always start with who are we calling on and what are their pain points? Can you get really curious about those pain points? And do you care? I mean, do you care about mm -hmm. these people? Do you want to help them? Can you honestly say that? Because that that starts from a curiosity point, point of view. And the other thing I think of is what MSP has done a fantastic job with in, in, in policing the community. So if, mm -hmm. if somebody goes on there and they go, hey, you know, should I should I get chorus or gong? And somebody from Gong comes on and goes, "Hey, I work for Gong. You want a demo?" They're, yeah, they'll ban, they'll ban that shit. Like, yeah, <laughs> they'll yeah. ban you because. Yeah. But so the I think what I'm hearing is the better way to approach these communities is like, you know, go on there for a while, add value, like try to help people, answer questions, and then of course, you know, someone eventually is going to go, oh, "Hey, by the way, you know, what do you do?" So yeah. And don't do it so that they ask the question, right? Because yeah, that's, that's, that's transparent too. Like that's I realized true. when I said all of that, it creates the impression like that that's the intent. Your intent should be to genuinely help and contribute and, and be a part of the community. But yeah, I'm absolutely a huge fan of the Banhammer. I think it's what makes a community <laughs> like MSP uniquely so good. <laughs> I like that the band hammer. But don't don't get don't get swacked by the band hammer. And, totally. And, <laughs> and it's it, you mentioned that book Give and Take, which is awesome. If you guys haven't read that, definitely check it out. And it's funny because one of the things he says in there is that the highest and lowest earners in mm -hmm. his survey were the full-on givers because 
you know, it, it, it's maybe that you're giving so much that you get a ton back in return. Not that you want to, but it's just that you're you're giving so much value to the marketplace. But then also you could be at the bottom of the earning pool because all you're doing is giving and nobody wants it or you're not giving in the right place and stuff like that. So it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Stephen, dude, I feel like we're just scratching the surface on so many things. I've got a ton of notes that I want to post along with this podcast. We're going to have to get you on again. But, man, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. And I'm excited for round two once we get, you know, hopefully not in three years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll see you in 36 months. No, I, I, I'm <laughs> super excited too. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be on this podcast and, and to be in such great company. And, and I really love and respect what you're doing in terms of elevating the community sales development. Like I wouldn't be where I was at if I didn't grow up there. In fact, like if I had actually gone straight to direct sales, I actually think it would have been to my detriment because again, like the focus on four, like the, the sort of core foundational skills is so critical and actually ends up being what moves the needle wherever you sit in a sales org. So just th the fact that you're continuing to elevate that role is a great thing. And, and again, you know, if you, if you interview anyone who's phenomenal and they want to sort of build something amazing, pass them over my way. Cause we're always hiring a bevy. Oh, nice. I'm excited. I want to dig into Bevy and, and what you guys are doing. If anybody's listening to this and they, you consider yourself an A player, connect with Steven over on LinkedIn. And thank you so much for, for tuning in to the, the Sales Development Podcast. Steven, thanks again, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to the Sales Development Podcast, the only audio forum 100% focused and dedicated to sales development with your host, David Delaney. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube and take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes. Your support makes our show possible. If you are struggling with your sales development program, contact us at 10bound.com for a no-obligation exploratory call. Again, that's 10bound.com.